Book One, Chapter Two, Part Two of The Octopus by Frank Norris. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. It was ten minutes before train time when Heron reached the depot at Guadalajara. The San Francisco papers of the preceding day had arrived on an earlier train. He bought a couple from the station agent and looked them over till a distant and prolonged whistle announced the approach of the down train. In one of the four passengers that alighted from the train he recognized his father. He half rose in his seat, whistling shrilly between his teeth, waving his hand, and Magnus Derrick, catching sight of him, came forward quickly. Magnus, the governor, was all of six feet tall, and, though now well toward his sixtieth year, was as an erect as an officer of cavalry. He was broad in proportion, a fine commanding figure, imposing an immediate respect, impressing one with a sense of gravity, of dignity, and a certain pride of race. He was smooth-shaven, thin-lipped, with a broad chin and a prominent hawk-like nose, the characteristics of the family, thin with a high bridge, such as one sees in the later portraits of the Duke of Wellington. His hair was thick and iron-gray, and had a tendency to curl in a forward direction just in front of his ears. He wore a top hat of gray, with a wide brim, and a frock coat, and carried a cane with a yellowed ivory head. As a young man it had been his ambition to represent his native state, North Carolina, in the United States Senate. Calhoun was his great man, but in two successive campaigns he had been defeated. His career checked in this direction, he had come to California in the fifties. He had known and had been the intimate friend of such men as Terry, Broderick, General Baker, Lick, Alvarado, Emmerich, Larkin, and above all of the unfortunate and misunderstood Ralston. Once he had been put forward as a Democratic candidate for governor, but failed of election. After this, Magnus had definitely abandoned politics and had invested all his money in the Corpus Christi mines. Then he had sold out his interest at a small profit, just in time to miss his chance of becoming a multimillionaire in the Comstock boom, and was looking for reinvestments in other lines when the news that wheat had been discovered in California was passed from mouth to mouth. Practically, it amounted to a discovery. Dr. Glenn's first harvest of wheat in Calusa County, quietly undertaken, but suddenly realized with dramatic abruptness, gave a new matter for reflection to the thinking men of the new West. California suddenly leaped unheralded into the world's market as a competitor in wheat production. In a few years her output of wheat exceeded the value of her output of gold, and when, later on, the Pacific and Southwestern Railroad threw open to settlers the rich lands of Tulare County, conceded to the corporation by the government as a bonus for the construction of the road, Magnus had been quick to seize the opportunity, and had taken up the ten thousand acres of Los Muertos. Wherever he had gone, Magnus had taken his family with him. Lyman had been born at Sacramento during the turmoil and excitement of Derrick's campaign for governor, and Harron at Shingle Springs, in El Dorado County, six years later. But Magnus was in every sense the prominent man. In whatever circle he moved, he was the chief figure. Instinctively other men looked to him as the leader. He himself was proud of this distinction. He assumed the grand manner very easily, and carried it well. As a public speaker he was one of the last of the followers of the old school of orators. 
he even carried the diction and manner of the rostrum into private life. It was said of him that his most colloquial conversation could be taken down in shorthand and read off as an admirable specimen of pure well-chosen English. He loved to do things upon a grand scale, to preside, to dominate. In his good humor there was something Jovian. When angry, everybody around him trembled. But he had not the genius for detail, was not patient. The certain grandiose lavishness of his disposition occupied itself more with results than with means. He was always ready to take chances, to hazard everything on the hopes of colossal returns. In the mining days at Placerville, there was no more redoubtable poker player in the county. He had been as lucky in his mines as in his gambling, sinking shafts and tunneling in violation of expert theory, and finding pay in every case. Without knowing it, he allowed himself to work his ranch much as if he was still working his mine. The old-time spirit of forty-nine, haphazard, unscientific, persisted in his mind. Everything was a gamble. Who took the greatest chances was most apt to be the greatest winner. The idea of manuring Los Muertos, of husbanding his great resources, he would have scouted as niggardly, Hebraic, ungenerous. Magnus climbed into the buggy, helping himself with Harran's outstretched hand, which he still held. The two were immensely fond of each other, proud of each other. They were constantly together, and Magnus kept no secrets from his favorite son. "'Well, boy, well, Governor,' "'I am very pleased you came yourself, Harran. "'I feared that you might be too busy and send Phelps. "'It was thoughtful.' "'Harran was about to reply, "'but at that moment Magnus caught sight of the three flat cars "'loaded with bright-painted farming machines "'which still remained on the siding above the station. "'He laid his hands on the reins, and Harran checked the team. "'Harran,' observed Magnus, "'fixing the machinery with a judicial frown, "'Harran!' Those look singularly like our ploughs. Drive over, boy. The train had by this time gone on its way, and Harran brought the team up to the siding. Ah, huh? I was right, said the governor. Magnus Derrick, Los Muertos, Bonneville, from Dixon and Company, Rochester. These are ours, boy. Harran breathed a sigh of relief. At last, he answered, and just in time, too. We'll have rain before the week is out. I think now that I am here, I will telephone Phelps to send the wagon right down for these. I started bluestoning today. Magnus nodded a grave approval. There was shrewd, boy. As to the rain, I think you're well informed. We will have an early season. The plows have arrived at a happy moment. It means money to us, Governor, remarked Harran. But as he turned the horses to allow his father to get into the buggy again, the two were surprised to hear a thick, throaty voice wishing them good morning, and turning about were aware of S. Behrman, who had come up while they were examining the plows. Harran's eyes flashed on the instant, and through his nostrils he drew a sharp, thick breath, while a certain rigor of carriage stiffened the set of Magnus Derrick's shoulders and back. Magnus had not yet got into the buggy but stood with the team between him and S. Behrman, eyeing him calmly across the horse's back. S. Behrman came around to the other side of the buggy and faced Magnus. He was a large, fat man with a great stomach, 
His cheek and the upper part of his thick neck ran together to form a great tremendous jowl, shaven and blue-gray in color, a roll of fat sprinkled with sparse hair, moist with perspiration, protruded over the back of his collar. He wore a heavy black mustache. On his head was a round-topped hat of stiff brown straw, highly varnished. A light brown linen vest, stamped with innumerable interlocked horseshoes, covered his protuberant stomach, upon which a heavy watch-chain of hollow links rose and fell with his difficult breathing, clinking against the vest buttons of imitation mother-of-pearl. S. Behrman was the banker of Bonneville. But besides this, he was many other things. He was a real estate agent. He bought grain. He dealt in mortgages. He was one of the local political bosses, but more important than all this, he was the representative of the Pacific and Southwest Railroad in that section of Tulare County. The railroad did little business in that part of the county that S. Behrman did not supervise, from the consignment of a shipment of wheat to the management of a damage suit, or even to the repair and maintenance of the right-of-way. During the time when the ranchers of the county were fighting the grain-rate case, S. Behrman had been much in evidence in and about the San Francisco courtrooms and the lobby of the legislature in Sacramento. He had returned to Bonneville only recently, a decision adverse to the ranchers being foreseen. The position he occupied on the salary list of the Pacific and Southwestern could not readily be defined for he was neither freight agent, passenger agent, attorney, real estate broker, nor political servant, though his influence in all these offices was undoubted and enormous. But for all that, the ranchers around Bonneville knew whom to look to as a source of trouble. There was no denying the fact that for Osterman, Broderson, Annixter, and Derrick, S. Behrman was the railroad. "'Mr. Derrick, good morning.' cried as he came up. Good morning, Heron. Gl glad to see you back, Mr. Derrick. He held out a thick hand. Magnus, head and shoulders above the other, tall, thin, erect, looked down upon S. Behrman, inclining his head, failing to see his extended hand. Good morning, sir, he observed, and waited for S. Behrman's further speech. Well, Mr. Derrick, continued S. Behrman, wiping the back of his neck with his handkerchief. I saw in the city papers yesterday that our case had gone against you. I guess it wasn't any great news to you, commented Harron, his face scarlet. I guess you knew which way Olstein was going to jump after your very first interview with him. You don't like to be surprised in that sort of thing, S. Behrman. Now, you know better than that, Harron remarked S. Behrman, blandly. I know what you mean to imply, but I ain't gonna let it make me mad. I wanted to say to your governor, I wanted to say to you, Mr. Derrick, as one man to another, letting go for the minute that we were on opposite sides of the case, that I'm sorry you didn't win. Your side made a good fight, but it was in a mistaken cause. That's the whole trouble. Why, you could have figured out before you ever went into the case that such rates are confiscation of property. You must allow us, must allow the railroad, a fair interest on the investment. You don't want us to go into the receiver's hands now, do you, Mr. Derrick? 
the board of railroad commissioners was bought remarked magnus sharply a keen brisk flash glinting in his eye it was part of the game put in harran for the railroad commission to cut rates to a ridiculous figure far below a reasonable figure just though it would be confiscation whether ulstein is a tool of yours or not he had to put the rates back to what they were originally if you enforce those rates mr harran returned s behrman calmly we wouldn't be able to earn sufficient money to meet operating expenses or fixed charges to say nothing of a surplus over to pay dividends tell me when the p and s w ever paid dividends the lowest rates continued s behrman that the legislature can establish must be such as will secure us a fair interest on our investment well what's your standard come on let's hear it who is to say what's a fair rate the railroad has its own notions of fairness sometimes the laws of the state returns s behrman fixed the rate of interest at seven per cent that's good enough standard for us there is no reason mr harran why a dollar invested in a railroad should not earn as much as a dollar represented by a promissory note seven per cent by applying your schedule of rates we would not earn a cent we would be bankrupt interest on your investment cried harran furious it's fine to talk about fair interest. I know and you know that the total earnings of the P&SW, their main branch and leased lines for last year, was between 19 and 20 millions of dollars. Do you mean to say that 20 million dollars is 7% of the original cost of the road? S. Behrman spread out his hands, smiling. Well, that was the gross, not the net figure. And how can you tell what the original cost of the road was? Ah, that's just it shouted harran emphasizing each word with a blow of his fist upon his knees his eyes sparkling you take cursed good care that we don't know anything about the original cost of the road but we know you are bonded for treble your value and we know this that the road could have been built for fifty four thousand dollars per mile and you say it cost you eighty seven thousand it makes a difference, S. Behrman, on which of these two figures you are basing your seven per cent. That always show obstinacy, Harran, observed S. Behrman vaguely, but it don't show common sense. We are threshing out old straw, I believe, gentlemen, remarked Magnus. The question was thoroughly sifted in the courts. That's right, assented S. Behrman. The best way is that the railroad and the farmer understand each other and get along peaceably. We are both dependent on each other. Your plows, I believe, Mr. Derrick, S. Behrman nodded toward the flat cars. They are consigned to me, admitted Magnus. Well, it looks a trifle like rain, observed S. Behrman, easing his neck and jowl in his limp collar. I suppose you will want to begin ploughing next week. Possibly, said Magnus. I'll see that your ploughs are hurried through for you then, Mr. Derrick. We will route them by fast freight for you, and it won't cost you anything extra. What do you mean? demanded Harran. The ploughs are here. We have nothing more to do with the railroad. I'm going to have my wagons down here this afternoon. Oh, I am sorry 
answered S. Behrman, but the cars are going north. Not as you thought coming from the north. They have not been to San Francisco yet. Magnus made a slight movement of the head as one who remembers a fact hitherto forgotten. But Harran was as yet unenlightened. To San Francisco, he answered. We want them here. What are you talking about? Well, go according to regulations, answered S. Behrman. Freight of this kind coming from the eastern points into the state must go first to one of our common points and be reshipped from there. Harran did remember now, but never before had the matter so struck home. He leaned back in his seat in dumb amazement for the instant. Even Magnus had turned a little pale. Then abruptly Harran broke out violent and raging. What next? By God! Why don't you break into our houses at night? Why don't you steal the watch out of my pocket? Steal the horses out of the harness? Hold us up with a shotgun? Yes, stand and deliver your money or your life. Here we bring our plows from the east over your lines, but you're not content with your long-haul rate between eastern points and Bonneville. You want to get us under your ruinous short-haul rate between Bonneville and San Francisco. And return! Think of it. Here's a, a load of stuff for Bonneville that can't stop at Bonneville where it is consigned. But it has got to go up to San Francisco by way of Bonneville at forty cents per ton and then be reshipped from San Francisco back to Bonneville again at fifty-one cents per ton the short-haul rate. And we have to pay it all or go without. Here are the plows right here in sight of the land they've got to be used on the season just ready for them and we can't touch them oh he exclaimed in deep disgust isn't it a pretty mess isn't it a farce the whole dirty business s behrman listened to him unmoved his little eyes blinking under his fat forehead the gold chain of hollow links clinking against the pearl buttons of his waistcoat as he breathed Oh, it don't do any good to let loose like that, Harren, he said at length. I am willing to do what I can for you. I'll hurry the plows through, but I can't change the freight regulation of the road. What's your blackmail for this? vociferated Harren. How much do you want to let us go? How much have we got to pay you to be allowed to use our own plows? What's your figure? Come on, spit it out. I see you are trying to make me angry, Harren, returned S. Behrman, but you won't succeed. Better give up trying, my boy. As I said, the best way is to have the railroad and the farmer get along amicably. It is the only way we can do business. Well, so long, Governor, I must trot along. So long, Harren. He took himself off. But before leaving Guadalajara, Magnus dropped into the town's small grocery store to purchase a box of cigars of a certain Mexican brand unprocurable elsewhere. Harran remained in the buggy. While he waited, Dyke appeared at the end of the street, and seeing Derrick's younger son, came over to shake hands with him. He explained his affair with the P&SW and asked the young man what he thought of the expected rise in the price of hops. Hops ought to be a good thing. Harran told him. The crop in Germany and in New York has been a dead failure for the last three years, and so many people have gone out of the business that there's likely to be a shortage and a stiff advance in the price. 
They ought to go to a dollar next year. Sure, hops ought to be a good thing. How's the old lady in Sydney, Dyke? Well, fairly well, thank you, Aaron. They're up to Sacramento just now to see my brother. I was thinking of going in with my brother into this hop business, but I had a letter from him this morning. He may not be able to meet me on this proposition. He's got other business on hand. If he pulls out, and he probably will, I'll have to go it alone. But I'll have to borrow. I had thought with his money and mine we would have enough to pull off the affair without mortgaging anything. As it is, I guess I'll have to see S. Behrman. I'll be cursed if I would, exclaimed Harran. Well, S. Behrman is a screw, admitted the engineer, and he is railroad to his boots, but business is business. And he would have to stand by a contract in black and white, and his chance in hops is too good to let slide. I guess I'll try it on, Harran. I can get a good foreman that knows all about hops just now, and if the deal pays, well, I, I want to send Sid to a seminary up in San Francisco. Well, mortgage the crops, but don't mortgage the homestead, Dyke, said Harrod. And by the way, have you looked up the freight rates on hops? No, no, I haven't yet, answered Dyke, and I had better be sure of that, hadn't I? I hear that the rate is reasonable, though. You'll be sure to have a clear understanding with the railroad first about the rate, Harran warned him. End of Book One, Chapter Two, Part Two